Some things shouldn't be transparent, like stop signs. But what you pay for should always be clear, like Hiller's true transparency pricing, always clearly itemized and never any hidden fees. Because you have the right to know what you're paying for. For more information, visit happyhiller.com slash true transparency pricing. Happy you'll be of the services free. Call the Happy Face Truck today. Now, nonstop sports talk continues with news and analysis from the lead writer of 1045thezone.com. Not the hero. We deserve to be the hero. We need it. This is the Big Six. It's going to be you. With your host, Jason Martin. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Good Monday to you. Welcome in. Big Six on the air. 104.5 Zone. My name is Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. Follow me there. Been up for a while today. Might make me more ornery. Might make me more worthy of opinion. I don't know. SEC Media Day started today, which usually makes me makes me roll my eyes because it's basically, I don't know. It's basically just a political speech. It's a stump speech. Nobody's saying anything. When's the last thing that really came out of SEC Media Days that was all that worthy? So I'm going to bypass much of that. Now, I do have some audio that uh, I'll get my main man, Ryan Mudd, spinning the Dodge radio style for me uh, to play here in a little bit of Jimbo Fisher and some of the things that he said today because he's going to play into one of my lead topics. I'm doing two lists of six tonight, and this will be an opportunity for you to get involved. We have taken some phone calls on the show not a ton because I've just bloviated and bloviated and bloviated. But my lead story tonight, branching off of SEC Media Days, the big six tonight, the big six points of SEC interest as we near gloriously the college football season because ain't no life without football. And football is on the way back. So I'm going to give you the six biggest questions, the six biggest storylines that I am paying attention to as we begin to near college football in the Southeastern Conference. Our telephone number is 615-737-1045. My Twitter feed, if you want to find me, is at jmartzone. Give us a call. I'm not going to let you give out six. You're not the host of this show. But what's your number one question? What's the most interesting thing to you as we enter the 2018 SEC football season, we will take those calls as much or as many as they want to come through. But we get to my list. Number one, I said this this morning on the wake-up zone. Is Jimbo Fisher overrated? Now, this is relative because, as we all know, Jimbo Fisher has a national championship on his resume. But... Based on the flow of the ACC, based on the way the ACC had begun to evolve, it seemed at least somewhat to me that Florida State was beginning to trail further and further behind Clemson. He wasn't closing the gap with Dabo. It was getting larger. I'm not saying Dabo was secretariat, but Dabo had a healthy advantage. Now, overrated, and I said this before, I said it last week, it doesn't mean untalented. Not at all. Jimbo Fisher's no scrub. 
But the issue for Jimbo Fisher is Texas A&M bounced Kevin Sumlin for him. It's not like they bounced Turner Gill out of Kansas and Jimbo Fisher walked into the Jayhawks job. This is a much different animal. Texas A&M has tons of money, which if we didn't know, we definitely know now. They want desperately to win at the highest level. They have the grandest of grand expectations, and they're pretty demanding about it. A&M hands Jimbo Fisher a 10-year, $75 million deal. You don't get that put into your hands. You don't get that kind of Skrilla to do what the last guy did. And again, Sumlin wasn't a disaster. Now, he was 51-26 and 26 in College Station over six seasons, and he won at Houston before that. Now, he was trending down, and that's the argument. The fan base started to want a new face, and as usually happens, they wanted a big, glitzy name. Sumlin went from 11 wins to nine wins to three seasons in a row of eight wins. He dealt with injuries, but he won a Cotton Bowl. He won a Chick-fil-A Bowl. He won a Liberty Bowl as well, and then he lost the last two that he played. But he was 51-26, and 26, not 26-51, and 51, and he coaches in the SEC West. Is it wrong of me to merely suggest or question or at least be curious to see how it plays out because Jimbo Fisher's new gig has way more pressure than his old gig. And that's just with the money involved alone. And that's not even throwing out the big question here. And that is, how good has Jimbo Fisher been without Jameis Winston? I believe we have that audio here. Here is Jimbo Fisher from SEC Media Days talking about the pressure to win now. Well, I think your, your timetable is as quick as you can put things in place and everyone buys into what you're trying to do. I mean, you have a timetable. Your timetable is now. I mean, you want to win one. You want to win immediately, and that's your place. But is that realistic? I don't know. It could, it, could it be? Yes. But it could it not be? Yes. It's all about the process of putting things in place because you want to build the program the right way up and, and get kids to understand and buy in. But I'll say this. Our attitude of our players has been tremendous. I've been very proud of that. I mean, they've come in. There's a lot of change. We do things differently. Not that the other side was right. Just a philosophical difference. And the way they've handled it has been tremendous. So, you know, you don't ever know. We, well, I went to, we went to Auburn that year in 1993, and Alabama was defending national champs in 92, and they come off a of 5-16. and 16. We went undefeated. So you, it can happen quickly. At LSU, it took three or four years. At, at Florida State, it took us, I think, four years to do it. I don't know. I mean, it could be, you, don't, you don't ever put a timetable on things because you, you can't judge people. You don't know how each guy is going to respond and what's going to happen in the chemistry unit, the camaraderie unit, and your coaching staff. So hopefully we're going to do it as quickly as we possibly can. That's why I hate SEC media days right there. That's why I wanted to play that audio. That audio may get played again before the end of the show. What on earth did Jimbo Fisher just say? He said everything under the sun. He said the timeline is now. You want to win immediately. And then goes and says, is that realistic? I don't know. Could it be? Yes. Could we win? Yes. Is the sky blue? Maybe. Is it green? I don't know. What in the world did he say? He sounded like somebody who knows that the expectations are to win, and he needs to come out and say, yeah, Hopefully we can fill that in quickly, which he says. He also went on to say this game is about dealing with pressure. I thought it was kind of nice. I liked it because he had the same commitment that we did, talking about himself. 
So Jimbo Fisher's just kind of all over the map there saying, could we win? Yes. Are we definitely going to win? I don't know. So basically he said nothing. But it was a minute and two that had to make your commute just a little bit easier, maybe a little bit more infuriating. But it's another example of why SEC Media Days gives us absolutely nothing of use. But it was hilarious to me because my question was, is he overrated? Is he going to be able to win enough games? And his answer was, maybe. That's a lot of money for maybe. Number two, is Coach O a head coach at this level? Technically, the answer is yes, because he is the head coach at LSU. But I'm going to go ahead and uh, give you a spoiler alert here. Courtesy of the six Tradamus, the answer is going to be no. Coach O is a coordinator, a good one, a really good personality, and the voice behind some epic local car ads. Put that in your Google machine if you haven't seen those before. But this dude is not a head coach long-term in the SEC, not at LSU at least. When you look at the prognostications for the Bayou Bengals this coming season, you know what you're seeing? You're seeing a whole lot of 7-5 and five for LSU, 4-4 four and four in the SEC. Perhaps they squeak into the top 25. I saw a few publications have them outside the top 25 at the end of the season. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you and remind you summarily that this is LSU, not Tahiti Tech. Les Miles gets run out of town, and in comes Coach O, who sounds like he should be the LSU coach, but he's going to be expected to do more than sound like Justin Wilson swallowing a plate of broken glass. That voice is fantastic. Can he coach? Let's talk about his team. He may not have a quarterback. We don't know yet. I mean, that's usually the case at LSU. He doesn't have the run game we've come to expect from LSU. The receivers are unproven. They've got one kid coming out of Texas Tech who sat out last year and had 1,100 yards. So maybe he could be great. Maybe some of these other guys could be great. The defense doesn't look quite as standout or stout as we're used to. Not terrible, but LSU has some high standards, especially on the defensive side of the ball. They've had to because of how putrid the offense has been largely. And this is the SEC West. Coach O ran Matt Canada out of town. And he brings in the guy he had as his offensive coordinator while he still had an interim tag next to his own name. He has said he's made it pretty clear to everybody that covers this team he wants to run USC's offense. And so Steve Ensminger, who he brings in, the veteran, has told him that's what you want, then USC's offense is what you're going to get. But if I had to predict it today, I didn't like that hire when they took the interim tag off of his name I understood why they got caught up in the moment, but it I just don't buy it. I feel like Coach O is destined to be the next Brett Bielema, not the next Urban Meyer. Number three, how will the Jalen Hurts situation play out in Tuscaloosa? Jalen's getting a lot of reps, a lot of first-team reps, after Tua dinged up his hand during spring practice. He has said so many right things. I was blessed and lucky enough to be standing in the Alabama locker room moments after the national championship game a few months ago in January, and I sat there and I watched this young man answer the same impossibly difficult, just heart-wrenching, brutal question about 48 times in 10 minutes. 
He was polite. He was thoughtful. And he was utterly complimentary of the freshman that took his job. Let's not forget this dude only lost two games in two years at Alabama. One of those games was to Deshaun Watson in an all-world national championship performance that was barely enough to beat Alabama. And the other in the Iron Bowl to a terrific Auburn team this past year. And most think he shouldn't even be considered for that job. By the way, when I say most, you can include me. I like this guy, and I just said a lot of nice things about him, but there's this continuing issue of him, and this is a nagging problem for me, of Jalen Hurts not being able to throw. That is a bit concerning because I'm not sure that you realize this. That's why you listen to 104.5 The Zone for deep sports analysis like I'm about to drop on you here. Pay attention closely. Take notes. Being able to throw relatively important for a quarterback. Just wanted to drop that nugget on you on a Monday. Calvin Ridley. We may never know what he could have been in college had he had a top flight pass or lob- lobbing in the football the past couple of years, but I believe in Atlanta we're about to see how good he really is. What we do know is, and it's going to be interesting how he answers it, is that Nick Saban is going to be asked about it this week. If we get anything approaching an answer, I will be utterly shocked because there is absolutely no reason to say much of anything yet. So those are the first three of the big six points of SEC interest as we approach this college football season. Number one, is Jimbo Fisher overrated? Number two, is Ed Ogeron a head coach at this level? And number three, How is this Jalen Hurts situation going to play itself out for the University of Alabama? Numbers four, five, and six of this list coming up next. And your questions, 615-737-1045. What is the one thing that you can't wait to see once SEC football starts in the fall? We are off and running on a Monday. The Big Six, 104.5 The Zone. Welcome back. Big Six, 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin at jmartzone on Twitter. Jason Isbell bringing us back. Cumberland Gap here on a Monday. Can't do much better than Jay. So our story today, as SEC Media Days commence, and a lot of nothing is going to be said over the next several days, we are going ahead and looking ahead towards the actual football season. I'm laying out for you the top six, the big six questions as we enter, as we get closer to football that counts in the Southeastern Conference, the three of you just tuned in, first off, shame on you. The show starts at 6. It's called the Big Six. It's not called the Big 620. But if you're with us at 620, we appreciate it, and there will be a podcast available after this show. So the, we, we got you. If you are unworthy enough, unlucky enough to have to miss part of this show, we're going to make it available to you either way. Is Jimbo Fisher overrated was number one. He replaced Kevin Selman, who was 51 and 26 over six years in AM. 
And I'm not sure I've seen Jimbo Fisher do all that much impressive as a head coach since Heisman Trophy winner, crab leg abuser, Uber problem, James Winston left town. Number two is Ed Ogeron, a head coach at this level. I believe he's a coordinator, not a coach. The analogy that I made this morning about Coach O on the wake-up zone was that he is the equivalent of Kevin Love being asked to be Dwayne Wade. He's one step too high for what I think his skill set actually is. I want to root for him. When you listen to him, he sounds down to earth. He sounds like he loves football, and he wants to do this well, and he wants to do it well at LSU. I just don't think he's I don't think he's cut out to be a head coach. Would love to be wrong. Would love to see him become a real fixture in the SEC. And number three, how will this Jalen Hurts situation play out in Tuscaloosa? Jalen Hurts has lost two games as a starter. Two. But almost nobody believes he should have his job now because of Tua. Who still, look, we've seen a very small sample size of Tua. But from what we've already seen in that small sample size. He can throw the football, and as I laid out, again, breaking news, we almost need a sounder for this because no one out there realized this until I dropped this nugget, this knowledge on you about five minutes ago. But if you're playing quarterback at any level of football, the basic expectation is that you can throw the football. And Jalen Hurts has not been particularly adept at doing that. All right. Four, five, and six. Number four, is South Carolina for real? Muschamp had a good year last year and he needed it. The yelling and the memes and the angry face only works when you're winning football games. Jake Bentley was better than I think most of us expected him to be. Debo Samuel's a stud. He'll be back. Who's going to carry the football in Columbia? That is a question mark. They have had some great backs through the years. A little bit shaky right now. Defensively, also a little shaky. Some holes, especially in the secondary. And South Carolina has that most dangerous of tags attached to it right now. They're the trendy pick. And that's actually a phrase you will see when you start researching South Carolina football as we near the start of the season. They're the trendy pick in the SEC East to challenge Kirby Smart and the Georgia Bulldogs. Now, South Carolina's been a trendy pick in the past a few times. Usually doesn't work out. Plus, as always, we're going to find out real quickly how for real they are or whether or not they're going to be playing catch-up for the rest of the season when the Gamecocks play the dogs in week two of the season in Columbia. That is going to be an amazing scene. By the way, I actually kind of think South Carolina is legit. I don't know that I buy into Will Muschamp yet, but if they go out there and they win nine games this season, it's hard not to give him another look. But here's how it changes. If they win nine games, all right, not bad. Anything less than eight, total failure. They win seven, that is an utter failure. There is not a lot of margin for error. South Carolina, the expectations are actually there. There's still a lot of unproven stuff happening in the SEC each right now with some new coaching staffs, some new schemes, some new systems. So South Carolina should be able to take advantage of that. Number five, if it's not Alabama, Georgia in the SEC championship game, what else could it be? 
They are the two odds favorites. We talked about that last week. And that's what it should be. Smart versus Saban again. But you have to think Jared Stidham and Auburn will be heard from. SEC gets a little crazy up near the top. However, usually the top remains the top. LSU is not going to be as good this season. A&M, that to me is going to take time if it ever happens. All these new coaches probably going to take some time. Florida interests me a lot, but that could take another season before they have the right guys in place. We'll see. Bama and Georgia are the predictions for a reason. They're loaded. Even with the dogs losing both Chubb and Michelle and at Cyborg, also known as Roquan Smith, their recruiting board is a murderer's row of talent. Auburn is the one team I'm keeping my eye on, and I really want to know how good a coach Gus Malzahn is, and I think we'll have a better feel on that at the end of this season. So if I had to pick somebody else, and it's not really a reach to say, well, Auburn, if I had to go with anybody else. Malzahn's been there before. Stidham played awfully well a lot last year. That defense was stellar last year, and they appear to be unafraid of either their in-state rival or the Georgia Bulldogs. And now the big six, which is the equivalent of number one on this program. Which of the new faces on the sidelines will find quick success? Five brand new head coaches in the SEC this year, and that is not including Matt Luke at Ole Miss. Obviously, there's Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee. And folks, I got to be honest. I have no idea how that's going to go. I was not particularly blown away with his work at Alabama, but I like the intensity. I like the no-nonsense approach that we've seen from him thus far. There's a whole lot less slogans and a whole lot more. We just got to get after it. But we'll see. Chad Morris takes over at Arkansas. He runs kind of this weird hybrid smash-mouth spread. And it sounds perplexing, but really it's just varying styles where he kind of takes from this and takes from that. He's not quite Lane Kiffin. Lane's one of the more progressive and prolific offensive minds out there because he twists multiple successful offenses and builds it into his own scheme. But Morris, provided that Bielema's current roster can run it, might be able to seal up some of those Bielema leaks that we've seen in the past few seasons. The other problem for Chad Morris based on just initial reports and just some of the speculation is can he recruit to Arkansas? I think only two four-star guys ended up on the way there coming up in this class. And it's not the easiest place to recruit to, especially with what's around it. And that is a completely new animal for Chad Morris. So long-term, that may determine his success more than anything else. The no-brainer is Dan Mullen at Florida. Gigantic success, in my opinion. I was a huge fan of what he did at Mississippi State, where nobody is supposed to win. And especially a fan of how he molded offensive talent that a lot of people just weren't even looking at. He goes from very few resources, almost no selling points outside of cowbells, to the University of Florida, where McIlwain and Muschamp, neither guy could muster up a half-decent offense. It has been a while since Urban Meyer was in town. For that reason, Dan Mullen steps into the perfect situation. Gainesville is starved to win football games again, and there's absolutely no reason to believe this guy, who was able to take SEC West teams to the limit with far less talent, can't use the advantages of Florida to get the job done. 
This, to me, was the A-plus hire of the group. Florida's going to be back soon. The real wild card is the guy replacing Mullen in Starkville and Joe Moorhead. We know he's an offensive guru. We saw what he did at Penn State. We see in reports he impressed during the interview process, even with no ties to the South. But I don't have a clue if this is going to work. It's worth the risk if you're Mississippi State. Mullen really was overqualified for that gig by the time he exited, maybe a couple of years beforehand. Now you hope, and this is an analogy to my alma mater, and you're just going to have to deal with it, especially if you're an MT fan. You just have to hope that your AD is as smart as Todd Stewart was in Bowling Green, knowing that the publicity Bobby Petrino would bring to Western Kentucky would help, but always in the back of your head hoping that when, not if, but when Bobby Petrino quickly left and used you as a stepping stone, you would be able to keep Jeff Brom who you wanted all along. And you still got the publicity from Petrino first. Moorhead has a mind for offense. Now, can he coach in the SEC? That is a tough gig to walk into, no doubt. But at least he's got Nick Fitzgerald. That's a proven leader. That's a guy you want at quarterback, especially if you are entering this situation as a new coach. And Moorhead has done a lot offensively in Penn State with guys that I'm not sure are anywhere near as good as Nick Fitzgerald at quarterback, except, of course, for the last guy that he dealt with, who, of course, was awesome. So we already talked about Jimbo and College Station. I think that's going to be good for nine wins a year, maybe ten. I don't know that that's what A&M expects in the end. He's going to do well, but I think they want championships and they don't realize that they're Texas A&M and they're not Alabama. So those are the big six questions for me. And there are a lot more out there, believe me. And we've got plenty of time to break those down either tonight or any other night. 615-737-1045 if you would like to join us. But the big six questions in the SEC. We will uh, go over them again before the end of the program. But coming up, we had it booked for us on Friday. He called in and he said, look, you did the top six it cities in sports. What are the top six not it cities in sports? Well, I have done the research. I've crunched the numbers and I have the list. And that list is next. Zone Traffic. Big six on 1045 the zone. I'm Jason Martin on Twitter at JMartZone. You can follow me there. Chris Stapleton. Midnight train to Memphis. Bringing us back. We already laid out the big six questions I have as we near the start. Not quite there, but near the start of the college football season. Those were SEC questions. We'll uh, run them down for you quickly again before the end of the program. But last week we had a caller call in on Friday and said, look, you did the top six cities it cities in sports right now in 2018 but what about the list of futility what about the other end what about the tail end what about the butt if you want to go that route what about the not it sports cities in america well i don't remember his name i should have written it down but i didn't have a pen in hand at the time is okay his name was jeff ryan mudd tells me ryan mudd doing work that i should have done in that case so thanks to jeff Here are the worst sports cities in America. And you may disagree, and you can have your say. At JMartZone on Twitter. We have a couple of people that are uh, stepping up. One in particular, stepping up. uh, Derek Butler tweets me and says, Auburn isn't winning in Starkville. Neither is Florida. 
Not saying we'll win in T-Town, but the dogs' defense and running game, Fitz and Williams, is lethal. I like it. I just like the confidence, and I like the smack talk, and I like the fact that we're talking about football again. All right. Worst sports cities in America. One to six. And when we get to six, that'll be the big dog. How about we start off with Detroit? First off, it's Detroit. Pretty much any list of bad cities in America or places that you think about and you probably don't want to live there, Detroit. The Lions are the Lions. The Pistons paid a ton of money for Blake Griffin, who's never going to bring anybody a championship as a feature piece, appears to be difficult to play with, and a lot of people try to punk him on the basketball court because they don't like him. The Red Wings have seen better days. The Tigers currently sit at 41 and 57 on the season. And what might be the most sad about having to reveal that to you is that that is just third in the woeful AL Central. I do like the Dwayne Casey hire, coach of the year for Toronto. And guess what? LeBron just left for the West. So that's promising. But when I basically have to caveat the best thing that's happening in your sports town as, well, this dude, this other dude, this great dude, he left that team, that one in the East that there was no way that you were going to beat. So it's almost like uh, one of those situations like Bill Murray and Caddyshack, Caddyshack with the whole, uh, this is nice or that's going to be nice situation for you. That's all that you've got going for you at this standpoint. But you got that going for you, which is nice. So Detroit, number one. Number two, Miami. Maybe overlook this, but so does Miami because they support basically nothing as a town. The Marlins, by the way, weirdly also 41 and 57, just like the Detroit Tigers we just spoke of. The Dolphins may or may not even have a quarterback. They also might have or not have a head coach. We're not really sure at this point. The Heat are about to see the end of Dwayne Wade. Maybe they already have. And even Pat Riley isn't bringing in free agents like he once did, especially with that white side contract. Nobody wants to play alongside that guy. Even when LeBron was there, if you noticed, they were late to arrive. They were early to leave. When they came back for the second half, most of the stands were empty, and they were still trying to get back to their seats because this is Miami. It's a place you don't really go to watch sports. It's a place you go do basically anything else. Now, Mark Rick, that's a good thing. Turnover chain, big-time positive. But that is really the only team with any momentum in Miami right now. Nothing doing when it comes to the pro sports franchises at current. Number three, Phoenix. Now, this one could be on the verge of a change. Cardinals have underwhelmed, at least lately. Now, Josh Rosen might be the real deal. Looks for sure like he might be the real deal. But it's too early to book anything there. Same story with the Suns. DeAndre Ayton looks like he might be really good, really fast. But the Suns have been a laughing stock ever since Nash, Amari, and Shaq left town. The Coyotes, do we really even need to get into this? The lone positive right now, today, is the D-backs. The Snakes are just a half game back of the Dodgers in the NL West. But Phoenix, Charles Barkley said many times, Phoenix has some of the best sports fans in the world. And they deserve better. And they have not gotten it as of late. And if you want to include the University of Arizona, I know it's not Phoenix. I know it's Tucson. But it's within 110 miles or so. Nobody 
has been more disappointing with more college talent in college basketball than Sean Miller. And that's not talking about the scandal. That's talking about tournament exits. That dude is the new Rick Barnes. I know Rick Barnes still exists. Rick Barnes, who never could win, couldn't win with Kevin Durant in the NCAA tournament, would get to the tournament with a good team year after year and couldn't get anywhere. And looks like maybe he'll turn the corner at Tennessee. Sean Miller has supplanted him. Nobody more disappointing with more talent than Sean Miller. And that Buffalo loss that we just saw with the number one pick, DeAndre Ayton, on the floor, that was a beatdown for Arizona. No good. Number four, Cincinnati, Ohio. Let's start with Xavier and the University of Cincinnati. One and two seeds in the tournament this year. Neither got out of the first weekend. Then there's the inexplicable reality. Maybe the most baffling thing in all of sports is that Marvin Lewis is still the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals. Meaning at this stage, it appears only a revelation that he's not just a criminal, ladies and gentlemen, but a serial killer might actually put Marvin Lewis on the hot seat. And then there's Andy Dalton, who is that most rare and dangerous of quarterback species. He's just good enough year after year to keep you from being high enough in the draft to find a true winner at quarterback. He's always going to get you that seven wins, that eight wins, and put you somewhere in that 12 to 20 range where it's a lot harder to find the quarterback and you're definitely not going to get one of the studs without having to trade up. That happens over and over again for the Cincinnati Bengals. And the Reds have not been decent in ages. They're currently at the bottom of the National League Central at 43 and 53. Cincinnati, when you're looking across the state to Cleveland and thinking to yourself, man, I wish we could get a championship like them. You're definitely going to be on a list of sports city futility. I apologize. A lot of great people in Cincinnati. Some of my best friends live in Cincinnati. But it is rough going for sports fans in Cincinnati right now. Number five is Atlanta. The Braves playing pretty good. They're not rolling as of late, but just a half game out of first in the NL East. Last handful of years has not been kind. Georgia Tech used to be a lot of fun in basketball. Remember Bobby Cremens and Dennis Scott and all of them. Matt Harpering. All those kids, all those guys back when I was a kid. Even a few of the Paul Hewitt years were pretty good, but this ain't working now. And that football program not hanging the way it used to in an improved ACC either. Then there are your woeful Atlanta Hawks who have not been relevant even when they were good a few years ago since Dominique Wilkins. The Atlanta Thrashers, that is not a thing anymore. The Falcons almost won a Super Bowl and then sort of limped around much of last year, hungover, got beaten by the Eagles. This year will tell the tale about Matt Ryan and a lot of things in Atlanta. Atlanta's always on this list. I couldn't put them at number one because they shouldn't be at number one. But they also have a lot of promotions for the Atlanta Braves where you can get a whole lot of tickets for like 30 bucks because they can't sell out this new yard. Beautiful place to go watch baseball. And the Braves are a fun team. And it seems like there's a lot of Braves fans, but those seats are never full. I guess I should be making more trips down there. I've only gotten down there one time. And then finally, the big six, number one, San Diego. Or number six, rather, San Diego. Why? Because they lost the Chargers, of course. But that's not the first franchise to leave one of the most beautiful cities in this country. San Diego, folks, has lost not one, but two pro basketball teams. 
The San Diego Rockets moved to Houston in 1971. The San Diego Clippers went to Los Angeles in 1984. They also lost to San Diego sales in the ABA after just one year. But how about the Padres, you say? 40 and 59 right now. That is good for last in the NL. They haven't been worthy of mention in generations. This city, when you look them up, when you look up sports teams in San Diego, the city of San Diego is currently touting a new lacrosse and rugby team that begins this year. And you know what else they're touting? Nothing. That is futility, the likes of which will never be seen again in sports. I feel sorry for San Diego. We got one more segment. We'll see you on the other side. Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. segment of the program tonight big six here on 104.5 the zone here with you every night at 6 p.m on 104.5 the zone i'm jason martin on twitter at jmart zone you can find me there our telephone number is 615-737-1045 we've gone over the big six points of sec interest as we near the season and just now the big six in not it sports cities in America. You talk about the sports epicenters. These are the places you want to stay away from. And I went with Detroit, Miami, Phoenix, Cincinnati, Atlanta, and San Diego. One point on the Hawks. I said that they haven't been good since Dominique Wilkins, really. I mean, they had that one team a few years ago. And they've had a couple of decent players, Al Horford and Jeff Teague, and guys like that have been through there. But let me tell you about how bad they have drafted. First off, I think that Luka Doncic is a stud in the making. I think he's going to be great. And, of course, they traded him to Dallas after they took him. How about this? Sheldon Williams taken at five from Duke instead of just a part of this list. Rajon Rondo, Brandon Roy, J.J. Redick, Rudy Gay. All four of those guys still there took Sheldon Williams at five. He's known more for who he's married to than anything he ever did on a basketball floor in the NBA. Marvin Williams in 2005 with the second pick. You know who went third? Uh, Just a guard by the name of Chris Paul. I think you might have heard of him. And then maybe the worst, John Koncak. A 10-year career for John Koncak in the NBA. John Koncak averaged four points and four rebounds for his 10-year career. And to take him, the Atlanta Hawks passed up Detlef Schrempf, Charles Oakley, Chris Mullen. Oh, they also passed up Carl Malone. What a scouting department. What a brain trust the Atlanta Hawks have surrounding them. Atlanta's always going to be in the not-it sports cities. It's almost, it's almost cliche, but the problem is they just don't have the fan support. And now you start looking at the teams overall. The Braves are starting to turn it around. The Falcons are certainly playing pretty decently. They lost their hockey team. Their basketball team's one of the laughing stocks of the NBA. It doesn't look like that's about to turn around. So I, they ended up in the list, even though I was trying to find a way to put somebody else in there for them. Also, if we're talking about futility, I don't know if you saw this. 
But Charles Barkley is really bad at golf. And I'm not saying that that is news, but I'm saying it's still true. He played in a celebrity golf tournament in Lake Tahoe this past weekend, the American Century Championship. Tony Romo won it. He had never won it before, but he won it. He was four points down going into the final day, had 27 points with this modified scoring system. Each golfer gets six points for an eagle, three for birdie, one for par, nothing for a bogey, and minus two for a double bogey. Charles Barkley, who had his swing redesigned, finished alone in last place in 91st with minus 93 points. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to read this directly from the comeback.com. Let's ponder the sheer magnificence of this. This is a 54-hole tournament where the worst you can do on a given hole is minus two and where a bogey alone is just a zero. And Barkley still wound up with a minus 93. A minus two on every hole would have produced a minus 108, only 15 points worse. To get what he got, Charles Barkley had to have at least a double bogey, if not worse, on 47 of the 54 holes that he played in this celebrity tournament. He shot 107, 104, and 105 over the three days. The par on the course was 72. The round mound of rebound, one of my all-time favorite athletes and favorite NBA players. But it's a divorce between truck and the sport of golf, the game of golf that really probably does need to come at some point in the near future. That's about as bad as it gets. Now a few stats for you on the way out as we'll do our things that make you go, hmm, to give you a couple of things to think about. Le'Veon Bell looks like he's going to be playing his final season in Pittsburgh. No deal struck today. He's going to play under the tag. He's not happy about it. Probably not going to show up until he absolutely has to. Here's what the Steelers did with Bell in the backfield when he was doing a lot of work for them at home in their last four games this past season. He did a lot, but the stat is how little it helped his defense because so many people, and I saw Warren Sharp point this out on Twitter, point to a strong running game assisting the defense. Here is what Pittsburgh did with what Le'Veon Bell gave them. They gave up 45 points to Blake Bortles. They gave up 38 points to Joe Flacco. They gave up 28 points to Brett Hundley. And they could not hang on to an eight-point lead in the fourth quarter against New England, even with Le'Veon Bell averaging 4.9 yards per carry. No matter what you want to say about how good Le'Veon Bell is, you still got to play defense. But if you want to talk about Le'Veon Bell's worth, this is kind of fascinating. And this is the stat to take from this show today. Interesting nugget comes from the MMQB, an article that came out today. The average running back in the NFL, if you want to talk about the devaluation of the running back position, as we saw the end of DeMarco Murray's career, kind of a surprise. And I know that uh, all the shows talked about that earlier today. The average running back makes 25% of an average quarterback salary, 70% of an average wide receiver salary and 85% of an average tight end salary. That is incredible. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. God bless and good night. Fast Talk is next.